This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. We've always had a really big focus on innovation here at VMware. And so there's a number of different ways that we sort of facilitate that innovation. So we definitely spend a lot of time debating things internally. We have a great innovation offsite called Radio R&D. A lot of it is staying really close to the broader industry and ecosystem, seeing what else is happening, getting inspired from the work that others are doing. There's no shortage of brilliant innovators in the IT world, but most are at the mercy of the software that they're using. And for that reason, an additional level of innovation is required to set the table for these developers so that their companies can flourish. Enter Kit Colbert, the CTO of the multi-cloud services and virtualization provider you know as VMware. During his nearly 19 years at the company, Kit has witnessed substantial changes in software technology. Though Kit explains that many companies have yet to properly integrate newer applications with their older ones. Kit joins us to discuss how VMware is helping make software systems more coherent and functional and how the company and its customers are creating an ecosystem of innovation. Kit, welcome to IT Visionaries. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Listen, we're about to talk a ton about all the things you're up to, but before we do, it is time for our audience to get to know you a little better. It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Kit, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. You know, one of the things we always like to know about IT leaders is you guys have been solving problems for so much of your lives. I'm curious for yourself, what's one of the craziest, oddest, or weirdest most unique IT problems you've had to solve? I worked on this technology called vMotion many years ago, which is kind of a core technology for, for VMware. Essentially moves a virtual machine between two different physical hosts. And it's, you know, there's some like really like deep sort of technical problems there. And I remember during development one time, we had this issue that would crop up where some of the memory of the virtual machine would be corrupted as it moved over. And like, you know, I spent months on this thing, trying to triage it, trying to reproduce it trying on different machines. And we never actually figured it out. We can never reproduce the problem on any other machine besides the one that it happened. So I'm guessing it was probably some sort of hardware bug in some way. But uh, that one, it was like pulling my hair out for months. Because if you get that thing wrong and you corrupt a customer's VM's memory, it's like, you know, game over there, right? So that one was, I was banging my head against the wall for a while. You solving that problem, is that a microcosm in your personality where you're the type of personality where you see like something that's wrong and like, man, I got to figure out a solution. Even though in this case, you didn't find a solution. Yeah. You just said you dedicated months to figuring this out. Yeah, no, it is. I'm um, kind of hard headed about things like that. You know, once I've got a problem and, and focused on it, I'm going to see it through one way or the other. So that's worked out well for me in various parts of my life and also not so well <laughs> for other reasons. <laughs> No doubt about it. You know, one of the things we always do is we look, we look up and try to understand our guests a little bit. We've noticed CTOs and leaders of IT, they commonly have what we would call outdoor activities and hobbies. It looks like you have a self-proclaimed runner and snowboarder. Are those things still accurate? Do you still like running? Do you still like snowboarding? Oh, yeah. Love it. Just started skiing actually as well this past season. So I'm both a snowboarder and a skier now. Try to get, you know, somewhere about 20 days of that in per season. And then, yeah, every week running, biking. Uh, I used to do triathlon before I had kids. And uh, I was actually supposed to do Escape from Alcatraz triathlon uh, just recently, but 
I actually dislocated my shoulder skiing Ooh. earlier this year. <laughs> so Ooh. swimming has not come back for me yet, unfortunately. For our audience members that don't know, the escape from Alcatraz literally is the kid would have to swim from Alcatraz Island to I don't know where the landmarker is, but it's over a mile swim. Is that right? Yeah, it's like a mile and a half swim. And then I think it's like a 18 mile bike and an eight mile run, something like that. And it's frigid cold water. Is that right? Yeah, it is quite cold. So, you're, I mean, you don't have to wear a wetsuit, but it's a good idea to wear a wetsuit. <laughs> well, Kit, I want to say thank you for sharing a little bit about your personal life. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your personality. You know, one of the things we always want to do here at IT Visionary is kind of understand some of the things you're working on now at companies that you're at. But VMware is such a huge company. We would assume mm-hmm. most people would know what it does, but maybe not because <laughs> it's one of those products where it's like everything's built using VMware, but the end customer often doesn't use yeah. what you guys do. VMware is a massive company. If you could really quick, just kind of tell our audience, what is VMware? What does it do? Well, I think if folks have heard of VMware, oftentimes it's for some of the stuff we've we've been doing for 15 plus years now, right? Our core yeah. virtualization capabilities, uh, things like vSphere and now VMware Cloud Foundation. And of course, that sort of core infrastructure capability is still going, but we've dramatically expanded our focus. And really what we're looking at now is all things multi-cloud. This notion that you've got workloads running in many of the major public clouds, maybe all of them, as well as some stuff in your data centers, maybe well some stuff at the edge. And sort of how do you manage, build, deploy, run, et cetera, applications across all those things. And that's really what our focus has evolved into. And so we do that across infrastructure. Uh, We've got security products. We've got management. We support development of modern applications. Uh, We support end users and user access and security and so forth. So really running the gamut across there. Give us an idea for the audience members who are more technical. What are some of the massive changes in your field? Because I think to when I started learning more about software development back in the early 2000s, and you would need virtual machines because you could, didn't have or couldn't afford to spin up enough hardware to run different applications or tests. Yep. So you would need to virtualize it and see it through and see if it worked before it was given to the you know consumers. We also saw it in, I did consulting work for the government at one point. Uh, so we would have like, a, I, I always tell this story, but BA Systems was one of my clients, which is the maker of like the tanks. Yeah, and like yeah. everything you ran was on a virtual machine. Like you could, even though you had a physical laptop, you had no <laughs> software on your laptop. Yeah. It was like nothing was yours. Uh, so there was more like security things yep. for it. What are some like the modern use cases? Because as hardware has gotten better, you would think that you wouldn't need virtual machines, but you but we do because we just yeah. now make the virtual machine even more insane. <laughs> well, the whole cloud is based off of virtualization, right? But I think that's exactly it. It's kind of the the abstraction has sort of moved up the stack a little bit. When we were first getting started, the fact that you could even create a virtual machine was you know already a technical feat in and of itself, yeah. right? But now really what we've moved to is how do we best leverage this underlying technology? And I think. Probably, you know, the biggest shift that we've seen in the past 10 years, well, 10, 15 years now, is the advent of the sort of cloud design and this notion of self-service of just being able to call an API to get what you want. And the reality is if that's the interaction model that you have, and it's a great one, by the way, then fundamentally you have to have software constructs behind that, that you can't be, you know, waiting for someone to like rack and stack a machine. It's got to just be software that responds to that API call so it can do it and, you know, respond instantaneously. And so I think that's really been the big thing that we see now. So when I look at and talk to customers, what I often see is that you know they're fighting many different battles or many different fronts of the battle, maybe we could say. 
that they've got a lot of their traditional apps that are still in the data center, uh, that they have virtualized, but still operate in the more traditional sort of IT model, kind of what you're talking about, right? And you know, there's people are still filing tickets and everything. And they've got a whole different set of apps that are running in the cloud. And these things are designed to be more modern, to be more API-centric, et cetera. They have these kind of two worlds. And they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I manage across these things? How do I bring my more traditional apps, my heritage apps forward and integrate them more deeply with the, the more modern apps that I'm creating? And how do I manage that? How do I secure that? One of the biggest things that I hear today from folks on the security front is really around software supply chain security. Yeah. So that's a really top of mind one. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with SolarWinds, that sort of attack from a couple of years ago. What happened there fundamentally was that hackers broke into their build system and attacked the build system. So the code was fine, but by the time a binary came out after being built, it actually had some malicious code inserted into it. This is something that everyone's really worried about now because it is becoming more and more common. So the question is then, okay, like how do you start to manage that and manage that between, again, your traditional apps and your modern ones? So that list kind of goes on and on there, right? But that's kind of a, a, just a short sampling of what I see to be the big sort of changes that are driving the industry right now. And I, you know, you've been at VMware, it looks like for the, most of your career, or if not all of it. Yeah, all of it right now. I, I'm, a, I'm a lifer so far here. <laughs> <laughs> not a problem. When you see like the demand, like you said, it used to be VM, VMs were done on a local level. Now they're moving up yep. the tech stack, if you will. Who has been the driver of this? Has it been, would you say it's your company? Like you guys have engineered solutions for this to make this a capable? Or have the developers themselves been pushing and asking you over these years, like, hey, I need to be able to virtualize. Well, what if we could virtualize yep. this? And then they come up with grander ideas. What if we could do this? This could unlock that. Who's been like just driving or has it been more like a symbiotic? We've been pushing it together. Very symbiotic. Yeah, I was going to say there's like there's a whole ecosystem at play here, right? I remember talking to customers in the late 2000s doing some of this early sort of cloud stuff, if you will, which is just, you know, tremendous focus on automation and doing that on top of our software. And, and that sort of enabled them to, to go and do this and, and d- develop some of those patterns. Clearly public clouds coming out, the approach that, that they have help to facilitate that as well. I think that you look at other sorts of technologies like containers and Docker when it first came out in 2013, 2014. Yeah. And to see where that's sort of headed now with Kubernetes. So all these things are sort of built on each other. And I think what's interesting though, is that even though you do see a lot of these same sort of technologies coming out, not the same, sort of different technologies coming out, you see a lot of times the same problems that people need to deal with, right? It goes back to the core things of like, how do you operate these things and how do you secure them? And how do you provide some level of governance, guardrails, if you will, for folks? And so I think what's challenging is that how do you, you as an administrator, someone you know, running this for a company, keep up with all the latest technologies? I think that's one of the big challenges that we're seeing as well. How do you see the best case? <laughs> you're right. That yeah. is the problem. <laughs> What's like some best practices you see? Because you're in this interesting space because where you sit, you also, you know, not only are you guys building an engineering products and solutions for tons of companies to leverage, but you're also seeing what they're, yep. potentially you're seeing what they're making, right? You're seeing and how they're attacking it and how big companies with big, huge, innovative concepts, how are they bringing this to life? And of course, Sometimes they're going to need new features, yeah. of which they're going to ask you, kid, you know, speed dial one, kid, I need to be able to do this, right? And a lot of times we don't know what the limits are until we actually try to build and we feel like we're roadblocked. So what are you seeing from your perspective as like, hey, managing technology is going to become more challenging, but this is a good process to follow. What are some like the process and procedures you've seen working pretty good? 
A lot of it comes down to providing the right levels of optionality for a business. There are many different ways to tackle a problem, and it to some degree depends on the disposition of a company, where they are, where they're trying to go from a technology strategy standpoint. So for instance, uh, one of the things we did when we saw the rise of containers was say, hey, folks who use vSphere or things like VMware Cloud Foundation, they've operationalized around virtual machines. And containers in many ways aren't that different from VMs. I mean, there's a whole bunch of difference in terms of how they can be used. But in terms of managing them, we've actually been able to extend vSphere to be able to manage these container technologies. And so the idea there being, well, if you're already good at doing this with VMs, you can kind of seamlessly extend to containers. So that's one option. And maybe that's the right option for a certain set of uh, customers or companies. We also see people leveraging a lot of the native container tools across the public clouds. And what, what they will end up doing is doing things a certain way in AWS and things a certain way in Azure and things a certain way in Google. And all of a sudden they've got three different teams like using these native container tools in like three different ways. And there's all sorts of duplication and lack of consistency and lack of things like security, secure software supply chain, some of the stuff we just talked about. And so for there, what we want to do is be able to provide technologies that enable a customer to drive consistency across there. So for instance, you look at what we're doing with our Tanzu portfolio, and that's really trying to say, hey, we can provide you a, a consistent Kubernetes experience across clouds, as well as a consistent developer experience across clouds as well. Allowing developers to take advantage of the good things the cloud has, but ensuring some base levels of security, process, automation, governance, et cetera, in the process there. You know, when I look at our overall strategy from a company standpoint, really what we're doing is providing these different layers of consistency, or you could, or you could say layers of abstraction, um, across public clouds. And those would be things like infrastructure consistency, things like DevSecOps consistency, things like developer experience consistency, and user experience consistency, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. That is really where I, I, I see customers getting more optionality because when they are able to implement those layers of consistency properly, then yeah, another cloud comes along or you have a new sort of edge location, you know, everything happening in the telco space with 5G, like they'll be able to more seamlessly extend that architecture to those new environments. And I think that's really, you know, getting back to the point, it's like it is an architectural type of approach that you want to have an architecture that gives you that flexibility and optionality to more seamlessly consume new technologies as they come out. As you were saying your answer and saying your previous answers, I kept hearing a common word kind of like bind these together, which is this mm -hmm. concept of security that everyone is pushing every vendor, it sounds like in the dev stack to like yep. be more responsible and more secure with how they can protect and govern like the, me as a customer building on VMware, like, hey, you got to help me. Yeah. Okay, I need your help. You need to help me secure this information as well. And interestingly, we've because we talked to so many CIO CTOs on this on the show. Uh, one of our, you know, our lead sponsor, they did a they did a platform research uh, survey. The top data security mm -hmm. trends for 2022 among them were phishing, ransomware, yep. DOS, DDoS attacks, insider breach. But interestingly, many of the people, including we mentioned earlier, some people from like the chip makers, from hardware makers, they're all talking about setting up virtual machines as a way to help with this. One of our guests in the past said like. The likelihood someone sends or gets, uh, let's say, like malware through an inbox is there's probably some level of certainty like that can happen. So then the question is, what if every time we open an email, there were, this is just an example for our audience of a solution. They said, what if every time you open an email, it spun up a virtual machine, it opened the email in the virtual machine and it tore it down after you read it. They're talking about doing this kind of stuff yeah. as a way to protect the business. 
it's if you're nodding your head, yes, give us an idea. What are the asks the customers are putting on you for like helping them secure their applications or the way they operate their business? Yeah, it's definitely a really interesting space. And I think the core underlying technology of virtualization is being sort of reimagined in, in how it's used. The traditional model has been that you explicitly manage this virtual machine, that right. you as an administrator create or as a developer create it and sort of update it and turn it on and off and all this stuff, right? And you kind of manage its life cycle. But I definitely see sort of the, the modern version of virtualization being it's there, but it's there in the background. And you don't really know it's there. Like, so for instance, there's something, a number of different efforts with containers to kind of meld together the concepts of containers and virtualization. So Intel did this early with something called Clear Containers. Amazon's doing it with Firecracker. You know, we've got our own version. But essentially the idea is every time you start a container, it can transparently start a virtual machine in the background to run that container inside of to provide greater levels of isolation and security. And to your same point, you can imagine, you know, with Chrome, each browser tab is actually a separate process. And um, that's one of the things they did to sort of help with performance and other issues. But you can imagine that separate process, yeah, being stored inside a dynamically created virtual machine which is spun up on the fly. And so you as a user never need to know it's there. So there's definitely some of these things that I think are super interesting, but you can even go further than that, right? And look at virtualization of, of all things, right? We, we virtualize storage and networking and even taking it to broader concepts, for instance, zero trust, the, the sort of virtualization of the wide area network there. And thinking about instead of having this traditional model where your data center is kind of like a walled garden, everything inside is highly trusted and everything outside is untrusted. So you build a big moat around it. The idea with zero trust is that you're now kind of everything separated. Data is kind of everywhere all over the internet on random user devices. You got SaaS apps, you got things in your data center. So there's no sort of circle you can draw around that and say, here's all my good stuff and here's everything else that's bad and scary and, and potentially dangerous. Instead, what you have to do is shrink that circle of trust just around the, the, you know, but have many of them around each device, around your data center, sub parts of your data center, around different parts of the cloud, and then connect them with intelligent networking and so forth. That's another type of like virtualization as well. So I do think we're seeing stuff that that we're driving. There's a bunch that we're doing in the zero trust space, for instance, uh, leveraging a lot of our SD-WAN technologies, our SASE technologies, uh, Carbon Black, our security technologies. But you're seeing that across the ecosystem as well. And so I think it's really, really cool to see that kind of innovation happening in such a broad uh, standpoint. I guess, how does that even begin? Is that the decision that like customers are pushing up to you? Like, hey, how do you help me virtualize a network? Because like, if that wasn't something you were, you know, at, at some point that was new, you know, <laughs> at yeah. one point that was yeah. new, new to you guys. We're like, wait, we've never thought about this. From the different CISOs we've talked to, it sounds like a very, ele- it's a very elegant solution because the idea that you could have Every, because everything's like you said, everything's virtualized and containerized already. If anything bad happens in it, that simple component can be torn down and protected mm-hmm. from the rest. You know, different people, I'm sure different manufacturers, different companies that keep pushing these ideas up to you. How do you choose where to build your team's time? Where do you guys need to innovate? How do you think about approaching these things? Because, you know, for the most part, VMware, you guys largely are building things that just don't exist, right? You know, they don't exist. Like they're, you're being asked to build the future yeah. so that other people can build their futures. Give us an idea of, how you choose what to make, what to focus on, how, where your attention is going to be? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we've always had a really big focus on innovation here at VMware. It's something that is very ingrained into our culture. And so there's a number of different ways that, that we sort of facilitate that innovation. Certainly a big part of it is staying close to customers, listening to them like, hey, here's the problems I got. Here's what I need your help with. 
But there's a lot of things that they don't ask for as well, mostly because they just don't know it's even possible right. <laughs> to ask for some of these things, right? So we definitely spend a lot of time debating things internally. We have a great innovation offsite we have called Radio R&D Innovation Offsite. So it's kind of like the premier innovation event internally, kind of the highlight of the year for many of our engineers, where we get together and share a whole bunch of ideas there. A lot of it is staying really close to the broader industry and ecosystem, seeing what else is happening, get, getting inspired from, from the work that others are doing. For instance, a lot of the secure software supply chain stuff, what we can do is as we start to enable you know, this notion of virtualization or, or containerization, this ability to recreate or reinstantiate applications on the fly just from a set of API calls. You have a fully automated CICD build pipeline. You can reinstantiate these things. And so this notion of sort of repaving or reinstantiating things on a very frequent basis, maybe once a day, maybe once a week. And then you can start doing some really interesting things where if you start noticing behavioral abnormalities, you can start doing automatic repaves based on that. Or if you even notice that you have to do more repays because of these abnormalities. That in itself is a, it's a kind of a meta-level abnormality. So we're starting to now bring a whole bunch of interesting things like AI into practice here of looking at behavior and trying to understand, okay, like in this fully automated or mostly automated system, how do we still have eyes in there that can tell us, hey, something might be off, even though we are putting up a lot of these sort of security guards and so forth. And so this is like another example of sort of the defense in depth that we're trying to bring. And again, this is these sorts of ideas, I think, are coming from many places. It's like, you know, where does an idea originate from? Sometimes it's hard to tell. But a lot of it is coming internally, but a lot of it we're trying to get inspiration externally as well from customers and from other folks in the industry. What about new techniques or whether it's innovations in segments, like you mentioned AI earlier? What gets you personally fired up like get excited? Like what are you looking for? Yeah. Things to build faster, things for more security? Like where does your we all lean in a certain direction. Yeah, Give us yeah, an idea yeah. of what gets you personally excited when you're seeing all these new innovative solutions come up to the table at, at your conference. Certainly, there's got to be things that just fire you up. Oh, yeah, for sure. So let me share a couple. I mean, just as a background, right? So I've been in the CTO role now for about uh, nine months, give or take nine, 10 months now. I've been here at the company, yeah, for like 19 years, <laughs> as we said, a lifer. But um, but fairly, you know, still fairly new in, in the in the corporate CTO role. And one of the cool things about it is just that I'm exposed to so much across VMware of what we're doing. And just yeah. the breadth of our activities is pretty astounding and in a really, really cool way. And so I'm one of these people that just loves to learn and loves to you know be exposed to new things. And that's absolutely happened over the past few months or many months now. So a couple of things have been particularly exciting. So first is what we're doing in enterprise blockchain. Now, when I first heard about this, I'm like, blockchain, like, why are we doing cryptocurrency stuff. Like that makes no sense. Like we don't do that as a company. But then what I learned was that actually what blockchain is, it's, it's a really useful and interesting technology separate from cryptocurrencies, because what it does is allows multiple parties to come together to essentially jointly operate a shared database that's writable to anybody. And as you can imagine, there's a bunch of security and privacy, et cetera, issues there. And so we built this like really cool implementation we call the, the VMware Enterprise Blockchain solution. Right now, we're working with people, financial folks and capital markets to essentially redesign how their systems work. So, you know, today, if you go and like trade a, a stock, right, it still takes like three or four days for that trade to settle. And you're like, why in this day and age does it take <laughs> three or four days for something that should take a second? Well, because they have all these manual processes that go on behind it to ensure, you know, correctness and, and so on and so forth. But now with blockchain, you know, they can write that as 
a smart contract on the blockchain and it can execute automatically. And so we're seeing kind of the reinvention of capital markets architectures based on that. But we think that's just the beginning that, you know, there's a whole bunch of other financial use cases. Supply chain is another one where you got a lot of different parties sort of involved on, on a shared database, healthcare, manufacturing. You know, if I look forward, what I could see, and again, this is a little bit of trying to read into a crystal ball, but you could imagine that the next generation modern applications could be based around blockchain, leveraging that distributed ledger hmm. for these multi-party interactions. And that we'd be taking sort of the distributed architecture we built out with cloud and essentially turning that into more of what we call a decentralized architecture. So that's the first interesting thought. There's a whole bunch around blockchain. The second one that I've really gotten educated on in the past few months is around the telco space. Now, the telco space is a very specific industry, and a ton of folks have a lot of deep domain knowledge. But a lot of us who started out on the data center and cloud side don't really understand it. So I'm definitely one of these people. So I've been sort of digging into it and trying to understand what's going on. And what I found is that that space has not really, in general, taken advantage of all of the massive innovation that we've had in the data center and cloud space. It's super weird, too, because they, they power the internet, basically. They the do. I mean, yeah. So like, a, lot of the, a lot of the core telco stuff is still like fairly antiquated. A lot of the vendors there are still selling you know, physical appliances, whereas everywhere else, their value is software, not hardware. And so how, why don't you separate them out? There's a number of, of areas where the underlying telco architecture is being rethought. So the first is the radio access network, the RAN. Hmm. There's this whole effort called Open RAN, which is about sort of breaking that sort of monolithic architecture into a more modular architecture and then creating, you know, enabling a platform there for broader innovation. This is something that we've done. We have our own telco platform out there and our what we call a RAN intelligent controller. But the idea is that we now have partners coming in, one Cohere, who is able to increase this thing called spectral efficiency by like 50%. You may have no idea what spectral efficiency is, and I barely understand it myself because again, I'm not a telco guy. <laughs> but the point is that this is like a radical improvement in the use of the actual you know, cellular radio. You know, Massive efficiency there, which is good for many things. Good for you can get more devices on it. It's good for like energy use, you know, all these other things. But this is just kind of one small example of how this open architecture can enable greater innovation. And I think where I see it going with the advent of 5G and the fact that we now are going to have these edge locations with these radio access networks all around, uh, especially urban areas, every few blocks, you're going to have one of these things. And there more than likely will be general purpose compute that's sitting there to drive all the different software that's running these. But that compute can then be leveraged as essentially an endpoint to run any sort of end user application. So you can start to imagine this new sort of architecture that really goes a step further than cloud and becomes much, much more distributed. With cloud today, you've got regions and within regions, you've got availability zones. And with that, you have different data centers. And usually you can specify down to the AZ, here's where I want my app to run. But in this new model, what you're going to say is like, hey, I've got a thing that's out there, let's say a video camera, and I've got an app that I want to do some ML processing on that video stream. What you can tell the network is I want the app to run quote unquote near that camera. I don't care exactly where, but I have my latency and bandwidth requirements. And so you figure it out network. And so essentially the networks can become much, much smarter. And that today the network, it doesn't have identity. It doesn't know, you know, like what this thing is. It knows, okay, there's maybe an IP address, but it doesn't know this is a video camera that's owned by Kit and Kit's other application over here wants to run near it. So you're going to have a lot more sort of contextual data running there. 
So in any case, how applications will be developed will look very different here in this sort of distributed world. And this is, you know, I think has really interesting interactions and intersections with what I just mentioned with blockchain as well, the whole sort of decentralized architecture. But the point being that the underlying architecture of the telco space, of the internet itself, can be dramatically revolutionized by incorporating a lot of the open and modular architectures that we have on the cloud and data center side. So that's just two you know, very quick hit sort of ex- areas that I'm super, super excited about. And just the amount of innovation coming out is absolutely staggering right now. Well, listen, the, on, on your first point, I 100% know exactly what that feels like because I recently attempted to purchase a house and I said, okay, well, they said, you have to show that you have enough money for the deposit. I was like, okay, yep. let me sell some stock and do that. It Exactly as described. It took <laughs> days for the money to show yeah. up in the bank account. And I remember my realtor's like, well, it doesn't say you have any money. I'm like, well, I'm telling you, <laughs> it's pending. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You've it's been pending. Out by this too. Yeah. It's like, why does it take so long? <laughs> yeah, no it, took, it took like six or seven days before my bank account actually showed that I had the cash to pay for the down mm-hmm. payment on the house. So that was weird. Okay. So I, I 100% experienced what you just described in step one. What I'm more curious about, though, is what you mentioned in the second part, which is, if this comes true and there's greater speed, great lower latency, better availability of compute at the edge, what do you what do you envision that can potentially unlock? Because sometimes when I use my consumer application, this is why I'm not a CTO and you are, is like I think like well, that's pretty fast. Like I can't imagine wanting to do more. You know what I mean? What do you think is gonna be potentially unlocked? I'm curious with with all this, like you said, compute power, possibly, mm-hmm. you know data recognition systems that are happening with lower latency. They don't have to, you know, yeah. like for example, if I was in the middle of the country, I know, I know my example for autonomous vehicles is like, Hey, if I'm driving the middle of like Iowa, that data is actually being sent probably to either California or Ashburn, but I'm right here in the middle of the country. That milliseconds of time it takes to recognize, let's say a deer in the road is the difference between hitting it and not hitting it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like today we often have to Ensure there's like local compute, let's say in a car, right? Yeah. For your case, right? If you know for a fact that there is going to be a good cellular link and that there will be a good amount of sort of server side compute that's ready to, to roll there, you can imagine thinking about the architecture a little bit differently. And I think that's kind of, I think maybe one of the biggest things is that this opens up new sort of architectural options that just yeah. weren't there before. In general, what we are seeing is sort of this kind of hybrid approach where you do have something running usually on the local device, something usually small, so you know, maybe a little bit larger in the case of AI in a car, and then you have something running out in the cloud somewhere. And again, there's various sort of latency concerns there from a performance standpoint. And they've been able to work around them fairly well. You look at things like content delivery networks, CDNs. Yeah. And this is a really interesting thing because CDNs were built on top of the internet, but the internet wasn't smart enough to really, like in an ideal world, the internet would have had, like CDN would be fundamental to the architecture of the internet. It would just know how to get data locally to you. <laughs> and I think what we're talking about here is where that the internet will, will be designed like that. It will just sort of, again, it has identity, it has location awareness, it can get the data to the right places as well as the actual application instances to the right places. And so it actually then takes the burden off of application designers in some way because the infrastructure can sort of just handle it. It's tough to say what the exact applications of that will be yet, but it seems like to me a fundamental enough architecture shift that will unleash a whole wave of innovation around it. That's a great point because humans have continuously proven if you improve the systems 
it's amazing what people will do with that tool. Like the tooling, if the tooling has changed that much, people will do new things with the tooling. You know, I want our audience to get to know you a little better in regards to like how you got to this position CTO at a company like a VMware, which is really cool. Like I said, you guys are building the innovation of which innovation is built upon. You and I are roughly the same age. I graduated in 2002. It looks like you graduated in 2003. So I know exactly what you went through as a kid with the dial-up internet emerging like in (laughs) high school when you first, give us an idea. Like, were you always into tech? Uh, We looked you up, you majored in comp side, but I didn't know, were you always into tech? Like when you were in high school, I remember when the internet first came about, I was blown away, but you remember you had to wait like, you know, minutes just to see a picture. Like, (laughs) Oh, dude, I know. Yeah, no, I I mean, so what did I get? I mean, I guess I probably started with... um, Nintendo way back in the day was the first thing. I started with video games and then eventually got into computers a few years after that. So yeah, like I don't remember exactly when 10, 11, 12, that type of thing. I remember early on we got a, a family computer and uh, we got it from this like you know random place, but I saw them like, you know, actually physically constructing the machines, taking the motherboard, putting the processor on, connecting in the different cards. I was like, that's super cool. So I actually kind of spent a summer like working there, kind of learning the the ropes of of how these things worked. And of course, back in the day, you had to sell the dip switches and all these things to get everything working. And so that kind of gave me some some of the the foundations of it. And I remember I started doing some coding, like in basic and uh, early C type stuff. So I was really just into it. I love the fact that you could you, you could create on it. You could make these programs to do things. The early internet, it was on AOL and then eventually got onto the, the proper internet. It was on IRC, you know, trading MP3s back in the day, oh, and yeah. like creating bots, IRC bots and stuff. It was fun. But, you know, it wasn't until I got to college. So I went to Brown. One of the things I love about their computer science program is just like, you're just doing a ton of coding and you mm. implement all this stuff. Probably the, the, the most formative class for me was I took the more advanced uh, operating systems class where you actually write at least uh, the core part of a, uh, an operating system kernel. And so there's some things like writing the, the, what's called the switch function. So switch is essentially when you're switching between two different threads or two different processes. Essentially, you know, the whole world, as it exists on a computer, all the state has to be transferred out so that the, when the, the new process gets scheduled, it can you know, have all its memory and, and registers and all that set correctly. And that was just sort of mind-blowing, implementing that, because it gave me such a clear insight into how this thing worked. And, and it was kind of funny because when you are a normal programmer, you don't think much about how threads or processes are actually implemented. Like they just, these things exist and they're like great concepts to simplify your work as a developer. And so then going in there and actually implementing it and seeing behind the curtain, so to speak, that was absolutely eye-opening for me. And it's one of those things that was just such, as I said, a formative moment, you know, really set me on this path. My, my early days at VMware were very focused on these sort of low-level systems implementations and doing that sort of low-level work to create the abstractions that others can take advantage of. And I think that's really been with me. And that's kind of what, if I were to summarize VMware, that's what VMware does, right? Yeah. So we solve these really hard low-level problems and create abstractions that users can take advantage of so they're not exposed to all that complexity. When was the first time you got to build something like bleeding edge, cutting edge? Because you know, you you mentioned before you were handling some of like the blocking and tackling fundamentals that they needed abstraction for. When, when, is, when did you get your first chance to like really be part of some, a team that was building something like this? We're going to launch something new and Kit, you're going to be in charge. <laughs> yeah. So um, the first time would be um, when we worked on storage vMotion. And so I took on vMotion, 
and was a tech lead there for a couple of years. And, and the idea of vMotion is that you can move the virtual machine between two different physical hosts. And it still runs the whole time, by the way. Like there's like, you know, even the network continues to operate. No downtime? No downtime. I mean, there's technically like less than a second of downtime, but because of uh, most applications don't notice, uh, especially if you're using, you know, TCP and so forth, things just work. Now, the problem with, uh, with vMotion is that the storage is actually locked to, to a specific device. And so you have some shared storage device that both hosts can see. So the way it works, you basically just close, shut down access on one host and reopen on the other one. And so that way you're you know, reaccessing it. But the storage doesn't move. And so previously, before storage vMotion came along, in order to change out the storage, you had to shut down the VM. So unfortunately, you know, a host going down, you can keep the VM running, but storage going down, okay, you got to take the VM down, unfortunately. And this was actually a fairly common thing because people had to do SAN upgrades every three or four years. Their storage area network would need to be upgraded. So they'd take down all the VMs, it'd be a whole weekend. So what we realized though, with vMotion, that we actually had the technical underpinnings to make storage work as well, to essentially to keep the VM on the same host, but actually switch the storage that the VM was using. And so that was what we did. You know, the first version, we kind of, it wasn't pretty, I'll be honest, from a technical <laughs> standpoint, but it was one of those things where we, we were under a time pressure to get it done and we knew how we could do it. And it was fairly inefficient. Basically, we made a whole copy of the VM's memory on the same host. So we, temporarily, it took up twice as much memory as it should have. And it was much slower than it should be, all these other things. So we had all these caveats when the technology was released, but man, the uptake of that was wild. I mean, just absolutely wild. And we have our conference called VMworld. I remember at a VMworld after it was released, I was talking to some guy who was using it and this guy was raving about it. And he was like, yeah, I'm moving, you know, multiple terabytes a day with this thing, blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> and I was like sitting there kind of, you know, awestruck. And I was like, you know, as a guy that like built this thing, I would not recommend what you're doing. You're pushing it too hard. <laughs> and he was like, no, dude, horse, great. Great job, you know? And so I think it was one of those things where it took me a while to realize why it was so impactful. But what, looking back, you know, what used to be sort of a multi-month, you know, multi-person, usually yeah. multi-million dollar planning exercise to do a sand migration, we turned into a drag and drop. And that's the sort of power of those abstractions, you know, getting, getting back to that previous point. And again, it wasn't obvious to me that, you know, I, I got a, when we were working on it, because, you know, we had talked to customers beforehand, they were obviously very excited about the idea of it, but it didn't really hit me as fundamentally about why it was such a good thing. I think that's one of the surprising things about innovation is that oftentimes the real value of it is not clear until afterwards, you know, going back to yeah. like the, the telco example, when you have a platform where you create something that people can take and leverage, oftentimes you only have a glimpse of what can possibly be done with it. And it really takes the community, the ecosystem coming in to fill that gap, to continue it with this sort of innovative thinking. And that was a big lesson that I learned there with Storage Remotion. That's exactly it, right? Which is you create a capability, your customer's going to push it to the limit. Yes. Like you said, in terabytes a day was not a limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, was, I was scared. I was like, dude, I don't know about that, but okay. And then eventually they, you know, and then the other thing is they're going to ask you for more. They'll find the limit and then they'll yes. say, hey, Kit, uh, I need your team to make it bigger, faster, stronger, whatever the case may be. Yep. When you think about all these bleeding edge things that you guys are building, what gets you most excited is just seeing like what customers are going to build on top of it. It's just the success of your team. How do you, what gets you the most fired up? I'll say with Storage Emotion, that, that was what was so awesome to see like all the energy that went into it just from like out in the ecosystem and the customer base, like people create all sorts of 
add-ons for it and integrations for it. And it's just so cool to see that sort of creativity coming out, like people way more thoughtful and creative than me and kind of demonstrating to me like the lack of really my, my broader thinking there, right? And so to be challenged like that and also to be inspired by, by what they're doing. So that, that's what really gets me going in my mind is, yeah, this thing's cool, but you know, I don't really get it until I see what other people can do with it. That's typically how we see a lot of that from different developers is like, hey, they, they build the underlying architecture. And once someone builds something on top of it, it's like, wow, this thing is super powerful. Yeah. Well, Kit, we're running out of time here. I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries, man. Your story has been awe-inspiring. I got to ask you, you know, we're going to bring it back full circle because we always ask personal questions <laughs> up front. We're going to ask some more now. You know, you mentioned cool. earlier in the call that you, um, that you have children now. Is that accurate? Yes. Yep. Two kids. How old are they? Uh, 11 and eight. Do they have any understanding of what you do? <laughs> I don't think so. So yeah, this is the whole thing. This is like definitely a, a, such a Silicon Valley, San Francisco thing. Cause like they, 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 we really don't allow them to use computers very much right yeah. now. Right. It's, it's going to happen, but right. like, you know, they don't have their own devices. They go to a Waldorf school and switch is very sort of anti uh, device until a certain age. Right. Sure. So, yeah, like I, I'm very excited to teach them about it because it was, you know, very important for me at a young age as well. But I really like the fact that like it's so cool that, you know, they don't need devices either right now. Yeah. You know, we can be out for a hike and they're like off running and, you know, they, they love the, the outdoors. And so I want that to, to keep that part of them for as long as possible. But at the same time, I am like Joneson to like show them all the cool stuff and, to, you know, really get behind the scenes to have a kind of more fundamental understanding of how a computer actually works, that it's not sort of magic, but there is like a, a way of, of understanding it and helping to drive it. And I got to ask, you know, do you find that you're able to find clarity or solutions in when you're in those like natural environments? Because that's something that we see hear a lot from different CTS. Yeah. Like, hey, but you're stuck in a problem. You got it. What you got to do is you got to change your environment. Like when you're, yep. do you find that like a cathartic or mind clearing or when you go off running or, or uh, snowboarding? Yeah, it's um, for me, it's like really running where I get into that sort of Zen and just sort of, you know, zone out a little bit. I love, um, you know, here in San Francisco, going to Golden Gate Park and running through there up in the Presidio where you just have a lot of greenery. For me, it's like, and I do think there's something, by the way, very psychosomatic about it in the sense of connecting with your body, like doing sort of movement, exercise, whatever it is. And it helps get the sort of creative juices flowing. So yeah, it's something I, I try to make sure that I do uh, some sort of exercise daily and it really helps get there. And I do find, yeah, like random ideas or thoughts or different ways of looking at a problem will come up while I do it. Well, there you go. Kit, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing a lot about your career, what you're up to at VMware. I tend to align with you very much so in that I find that being outside creates clarity so you can solve complicated problems. We're excited for some of the stuff you guys are working on at VMware. I don't have any clue what people are going to do with it, but I'm excited for that. I, I, I <laughs> that's where the exciting part is, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it, right? Like, as you keep increasing yep. capacity, speed, capability, people build applications that help, you know. It's been awesome having you on the show. I want to say that your story was a lot of fun. And, uh, hey, like, I'm with you. When the time comes, you and your kids will be able to learn how to, I'm sure they're going to learn a ton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how to engineer. Yeah, they'll computer. be nervous just like I was, or am, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. All right. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome.